This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by Katie Bulls and James Forsyth. We're now a week into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Their advance is stalling in the north, but they've taken a big city in the south of the country, Kherson. James, Macron spoke to Vladimir Putin earlier today, and I think he was left with the impression that the worst is yet to come. Can you tell us what happened on that call and why it matters? So Emmanuel Macron, the, the French president, is you know, determined to keep open lines of communication with Vladimir Putin. But I think uh, Macron is under no illusions about Putin's intentions. It's quite clear that Putin didn't honour some of the things that Macron thinks he said to him about not escalating the situation before the war. I think what has concerned Emmanuel Macron is that... Emmanuel Macron, the Elysee Palace, are saying, was left with the impression that Vladimir Putin intends to occupy the whole of Ukraine. And essentially, the, the Kremlin's message was, if the Ukrainians don't surrender now, things will only get worse for them. The Russians are not backing down from their aim of demilitarising Ukraine. Now, Putin has also done a televised address in Russia, where he suggests, slightly outlandishly, that the operation is all going to plan. I mean, I don't, I don't think the plan was to have, you know, various things are out of view now i still think it's obviously still likely that in terms of the initial military victory russia will win that i do not understand though how russia would hold the whole of ukraine or support a ukrainian puppet government if anyone looking at the intensity of which the ukrainians are fighting would think that the conditions are ripe for an insurgency i also think it is quite clear that western governments wouldn't recognize their puppet government and would intend to carry on pushing arms into Ukraine. So I think we are left wondering what's going to happen. I mean, there is a lot of debate about what the Duma, the Russian parliament, what legislation it might look at tomorrow. There is speculation about the imposition of martial law. There is also speculation, again, and this may well be far-fetched, but there is speculation and chatter in Moscow about the possibility of a draft. And I think there is a feeling that if Russia does intend to occupy Ukraine, it does not have enough troops on the ground to hold a country with the size and the population and a population so determined to resist as Ukraine. Katie, if, as James suggests, this becomes a longer protracted conflict, do you think the government, the British government, will continue to support a Ukrainian insurgency? I mean, I can't see them supporting a Russian one. Um, So I think just by working from that point, I, I mean... Right now, if you look at the rhetoric coming from senior members of the UK government, it's really hard to see a situation where Russia takes Ukraine and then they start to recognise Russian control there. And I think the fact that you have Liz Truss again today, something she said previously, talking about how Putin cannot be allowed to win, shows that I think there'll be long-term support for Ukraine. And James, one area where the government has come under fire is in sanctioning oligarchs. Today, Michael Gove has been ordered to draw up legislation giving them the government powers to seize property owned by Russian oligarchs. How's that going? I think that the UK government has, in general, been out in front on Ukraine. You know, it, was, it was the first European country to send lethal aid to Ukraine. It was the country that pushed for, uh, along with Canada, for Russia to be cut off from the SWIFT payments network. But on sanctioning individuals, the UK 
is become, beginning to become a laggard. And I think that if you talk to ministers, there is a lot of frustration. There is a feeling that the current system that the UK has for sanctioning individuals is dysfunctional. And essentially the problem is the government can't build a case against these oligarchs that is strong enough to satisfy government lawyers that you can do it. But that that is going to be an embarrassment because... London obviously is somewhere where a lot of Russian money has come into. Some of that money is clearly, you know, a lot of that money clearly belongs to people who are Putin cronies. And while as the EU and now the US and now Japan are taking decisive action against these people, the UK is, is stalled on that front. And I mean, that is going to become politically difficult for the government. People will be seeing pictures of yachts across Europe being seized off oligarchs, but not much of it happening over here. Does the government actually have a plan? Well, I think untangling why it became so complicated has taken some time. And this seems to have happened under the May government amendments in the Lords, which ultimately have served to protect oligarchs. And it means that the UK is unable to move as quickly. I think as is being touched on, the political pressure is such that I think they have to try and find ways to circumvent it. It's also part of the reason you keep hearing Tory MPs blast lawyers who are working for these oligarchs, UK-based lawyers. And you saw Bob Seeley this week using parliamentary privilege to name some of those. Um, so, so I think there is pressure to change it. How simple that is, could, could we have a situation where new legislation is brought forward? I presume they will try and explore these various avenues, but the short term means that nothing is happening in the next few days. You know, Even if you start to do that, that's going to take a little bit of time to get there. So while the UK has been on the front foot on some things, such as you know, pushing for swift payments change, um, even sending you know, weaponry or defensive weaponry over to Ukraine, here I think they're quite clearly going to start to look on the back foot. Katie, is there a sense that there's a long-term change in the attitude towards Russian money coming into the country? Or is this just an attempt by the government to sort out bad stories? I mean, you've seen the Conservative Party attacked and criticised recently for links to Russian money. You see Boris Johnson in the chamber, I think, as we spoke about earlier in the week. most animated point during PMQs was when he was rebuffing this idea that his party had taken lots of money. And he was effectively saying, you know, this isn't a war on all Russians. We're talking about Putin and trying to separate things. But you can see it in various ways. I mean, for example, you have Ben Elliott, the Tory co-chairman, who runs the luxury concierge service a company quintessentially and as our steerpike column has reported online he has had an office in moscow so a branch of quintessentially which is based in moscow for many years now various figures pointed that after steerpike reported on it last week um you're questioning well who are these high net worth clients that you're boasting of in moscow obviously there's nothing to say they're necessarily to do with putin but you start to dig through and i think there's you know people going through various names and i think that the fact that that page has now been taken down online, so you cannot now when you try and read about the criticism of Moscow service, so I think there is a sense of vulnerability when it comes to some of the people with strong connections to the Tory party and their Russian business. But I think that is separate than the sanctions. I think here, really, this is more about the fact that perhaps because you had a weakened Theresa May government and there was no majority at the time and lots of this was happening, changes were allowed in, which are now coming back to haunt the government. So I do think it is probably more two separate issues there than, you know, the government going soft for this reason. Because if anything, I think they're aware that they can be seen like it's a weak point, so they want to go a bit harder. James, one high-profile case that's been in the news today is um, Roman Abramovich, who has said that he's going to be selling 
Chelsea Football Club. Is this an example of Russian billionaires trying to get out of the UK while they still can? Or is there something different going on there? Uh, I think it is clear that, that Roman Abramovich and you know, Keir Starmer at PMQs raised the specific case of Roman Abramovich to demand that he be sanctioned personally. Uh, I think that you know Abramovich has clearly decided that he wishes to kind of reduce his presence in the UK to use a, a, a language that wouldn't give lawyers a heart attack. But I also think there is something else going on here, which is I think Abramovich is clearly trying to in a kind of PR campaign you know, so you know so we had that suggestion that the Ukrainian government wanted Abram- Abramovich to help try and negotiate a deal and then the statement on uh, him selling Chelsea last night suggested that the proceeds of any sale would be donated to those people who suffered from the war in Ukraine now there was no criticism of the of Putin in that statement. But I think the decision to call it a war rather than a kind of special military operation was interesting. And Katie, finally, away from Russia, we're now on the second day of planned tube strikes causing chaos to London's transport network. Are the unions getting what they wanted? Well, you've got a situation where I think Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, is being quite heavily blamed. So he's been booed when he was out, I think, um, this week. And in return, you have a situation where Sadiq Khan is effectively saying, you know, it's not to do with him and the union, uh, the RNT union, should be blaming the government, not him. In terms of where we're going resolution, I don't think we're at a point yet for it. But it's been quite clear, I think, from those of us going to work Tuesday and Thursday today, how much disruption this causes and how actually is just grounding so many things to a halt. And it's also interesting in a way that now I'm also working from home because we've had it in the pandemic. So the official advice is, well, there's a strike when you should work from home. And I feel as though in previous years that was there was a greater reluctance to move to that. But it, it doesn't stop it from being lots of difficulties and problems, actually, for places that rely on customers. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.